Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to the Odd Nauseam Podcast. This is episode 20 we're doing today. As always, my name is Jeff Winkle, and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Dr. David Noe. How are you doing today, Dave? I'm doing real well, Jeff. It's good to be here with you. Can you believe 20 episodes? 20 episodes is great. It feels good. It does, yeah. Feels Quite good. pleased with uh, the feedback we've gotten so far. Yeah. Uh, Dave and I were just talking about the reviews that we've gotten on the, on the podcast, and really happy and really excited with the response we've been getting. Yeah, there's one that really sticks in our craw. Oh, but we, we won't talk about that. <laughs> no, I think we should. Men- should we mention it? Or? Nah. No, yeah, but yeah, there's there's one review that, yeah, we're having you, a tough time getting over. You know who you are, okay? <laughs> so if you're listening, stop. <laughs> exactly right. So if we've, if uh, if I seem a little distracted today, it's because I'm thinking about that one. Yeah, review, yeah. Right. We got a shout out. You gonna set me up for that? Yeah, yeah. We got a shout out. Who who are we shouting out to today? We are out shouting to my good friend Michael Borg. Michael Borg. Yeah, the Borg. He is in uh, Bradenton, Florida. And uh, likes to listen. Hello, Michael. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening, Michael. Borg, like uh, for, like Star Trek, right? They, uh, I don't think that's where his name comes from, but yes, it is spelled the same way. <laughs> right. So he assimilates all unto himself. That's right. <laughs> I also bet he's never heard that before. <laughs> exactly. Uh, let me apologize to Michael while we're while we're while we're at it. Uh, Dave, you got our opening quote today. I do to set the tone and the theme. Yeah. So a lion at the gates, part two. Right. This title of this episode, Thermopylae in history. Yes. And this one comes from Herodotus, the man himself, the father of history, book seven. There now arose a fierce struggle between Persians and Spartans over the body of Leonidas. Four times the Greeks drove off the enemy and at last by their bravery succeeded in bearing the body away. Thus did the fighting continue until the troops with Ephialtes were close at hand, when the Greeks, informed of their approach, changed the manner of their fighting. They withdrew again to the narrow section of the pass and behind the wall, and took up a position in close formation on a hillock, all except the Thebans. This hillock is at the entrance to the pass, where now stands a stone lion in honor of Leonidas. Here they resisted to the last with their swords if they had them, if not with their hands and teeth, until they were overwhelmed by the encircling Persians, of whom some came on from the front after demolishing the wall, while others closed in from behind." That hands and teeth part always gets to me. Yes, it does. The last of the last stand. Mm. Yeah. Brutal stuff. Yeah. So, Jeff. Yes. uh, What are we going to give our listeners this week? Well, this is part two, our episodes on Thermopylae. So uh, last week, if you haven't um, tuned into part one, you might want to do that before tuning into this one. But last week, we, we set the stage. We got the Greeks to Thermopylae. We have the Persians coming down. And today, we're going to get into the battle itself. We're going to, we're going to follow Leonidas uh, and the, the Greeks at Thermopylae. We're going to get all the stuff in that leads up to the quote that you just, you just read from, the, the last stand, the, uh, the 300 and more. A blow-by-blow, step-by-step sort of takedown of the entire event, right? And then through the magic of radio. Do people say that anymore? Radio? I don't know. Somebody listen to radio. <laughs> through yeah. the magic of radio, at the very end of this episode, we're going to take you on a little travel log. Yes. Jeff and I will recount some of our visits to this important historical site. That's right. 
So, Jeff, you're going to give a little recap of last week, just briefly, so people can catch up, right? Right. So last week we were talking about how uh, King Darius came over with his fleet and his army in the first wave of these Persian wars. Yes, 490, uh, island hopping. Island hopping across the Aegean, lands at Marathon, and loses this uh, very lopsided in favor of the Persians, this battle. Right. And, um, and ends up kind of giving up and going home. You mean lopsided. They had superior numbers, but, but the outcome was the opposite. Exactly right. So right. The, um, the, uh, the Greeks under the leadership of, of Miltiades set the Persians running. Yeah, Milt, as his friends called him. They call him yeah, Uncle Milty. Uncle Milt, I think so. <laughs> Still a, a great, great Greek hero. Greeks today, you know, they, they love the man, and understandably so. Yeah. Then 10 years later, Darius' son comes back. Right, and what happens? Well, first of all, he bridges the Hellespont. Yes. Herodotus tells this story. And when a storm destroys this bridge he makes over the Hellespont, the spot between the continents of Asia and Europe, Mm -hmm. Xerxes commands that the channel be whipped, chains thrown into the channel, and it be whipped and scourged because it dared to defy the great king. Right. So that kind of gives you Herodotus' picture of Xerxes and his temperament. Yeah. Hubris. Lots of hubris. Yeah. He's going to get his comeuppance. Yeah, that, that bridging of the Hellespont, is, it's an episode that we've got to return to someday Absolutely. when we talk about the, the greater picture of the Persian Wars. I know that on the cover of the Peter Green book that we've been referencing last weekend and, and we'll continue to look at today has a nice drawing, a kind of an idea of what that uh, incredible engineering feat yep. may have looked like. And it's in the show notes as well, that uh, a link to that book. So, yeah, bridging the Hellespont. If I can learn how to uh, pronounce things like uh, chain and throw without... <laughs> Tripping over the words. So Xerxes the first, he heads north. He goes uh, across Chalkidiki, and he's coming down now toward Thermopylae, accompanied by the Persian fleet. That's right. So the Persian fleet is kind of is is following the army as it goes down, um, kind of working in tandem. And we'll see. That's a that's a key element in, in I think understanding some of what, uh, Xerxes' behavior at Thermopylae in the final four days in right. particular. Right. So last week we were also talking about how the Greeks are. Uh, if this is not a a rosy brotherhood unified force. Not at all. No, it's a tense. It's a tense. Um, it's a tense partnership between a lot of these Greek city states. They're worried about their home turf, mm-hmm. and so one of the things they have to decide is where are they going to try to make a stand. Right. I, I liken it to the way that the Allied powers in World War II uh, aligned against the Axis powers. I mean, in what universe would Uncle Joe Stalin and Winston Churchill, right, be friends? Right. Well, only if they feel like there's uh, an existential threat greater than either of them. Yeah. I think Churchill uh, calls communism something like baboonery, right? But there <laughs> he sounds like Winston. <laughs> there he sits at Malta with uh, Uncle Joe and FDR. Why would they do this? Right. Well, because they feel the Nazi threat, the and Axis that, threat. And that famous picture, they, they all look really uncomfortable. Definitely. <laughs> well, that's probably because the to to um, make the photo probably took a couple hours back yeah. in those days. <laughs> Good point, right? But similarly, right by way of analogy, the Greeks they don't really like each other. Athens and Sparta they're not buddy buddy. Thebes, Corinth, the whole mix, and yet for a brief moment they unite to stop this incursion from the east yes, as they see it. Exactly. And to follow up your comparison with World War II, of course, right after World War II, the, the West and the Eastern Bloc are at each other's throats. In the same way that after the Persian Wars, the dust settles, Athens and Sparta are back to being yep. um, enemies. Yeah. 50-year hiatus, then the Peloponnesian War. Obviously a topic for another episode. <laughs> right. So, Jeff, the leader of the land force of the Allies is, of course, this Spartan king, Leonidas, the lion. The lion. And I understand that uh, you've translated a portion of this 
the part that I read at the beginning was from the Samuel Shirley translation by Hackett, but yes. you've also done your own and it's pretty good. So well, thank you. Yeah. Can you uh, read a little bit of that for us to help us understand a little more of the character and background of Leonidas? Sure. Right. So I think that um, one of the things that I think that a lot of people who are generally familiar with the story of Thermopylae know that you know it, Leonidas is, is the king of the Spartans, one of two kings. Uh, what I think a lot of people tend not to know is that he's really a king by accident. Kind of this lot falls to him. And so Herodotus kind of goes through his lineage and the names of these many other kings and families from which Leonidas uh, descends and also mentions that uh, Heracles or Hercules, uh, the great Greek hero, is also uh, believed, was believed to be an ancestor of Leonidas. Really? Yes. Huh. So this, I mean, you find this in a lot of, um, you know, as you know, in, in lots of Greek histories, you know, tribes. Yes, um, I'm, I'm feigning incredulity. Yes, here. I know you are. Yes. <laughs> Um, but, you know, the upper class families would often trace their lineage back to right. Theseus, back to Heracles. Right. right? It was a, way of kind of, a way of legitimizing their, their place in society. Aeneas and Venus. Yes, exactly right. right. A classic example. But, but do you have the sense, Jeff, that the Spartans believed this? Oh, they absolutely believed it. Okay. Yeah, I don't think this was just simply a, a myth that supported the, the, the power. Right. And if you were to ask them, they would, they would say, well, not really. I think this was, this yeah. was literally believed. Right. And, and the Winkles came over on the Mayflower. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, exactly right. It was, it was like a rowboat trailing behind. <laughs> yeah. Read us your translation. Yes. Herodotus tells us that, you know, Leonidas descended from all of these kings from, from Heracles. And he also tells us that Leonidas had recently and unexpectedly become a king at Sparta. And Herodotus says, this is how it happened. Leonidas had two older brothers, Cleomenes and Doreus. So Leonidas had no reason to think that he would one day become king. But when Cleomenes died without a male heir and Darius had died in Sicily, the throne fell to Leonidas because he was the next oldest and also had his brother Cleomenes daughter as his wife. Hmm. It kind of goes against what I take to be kind of the the typical kind of mythic picture that Leonidas was kind of born for this, right? He, or he was a king ready to kind of step into this role of, of you know, uh, going to his known death. And right. It, Turns uh, out he had those qualities, as I think the story makes clear. Absolutely. But it wasn't clear at the beginning, of course. Only by hindsight do we see Leonidas is the man for this particular incident. Right. right. But it makes me wonder kind of how the Spartans themselves viewed Leonidas. He's kind of third pick, right. you, might, you might say. And as, as we were also talking last time too, there was no sense that when the, the Leonidas with the 300 and these many other Greeks that he takes up there, the sense that this was going to be a last stand fight to the death. Mm. This was an advance guard. The expectation was there was going to be the main force coming behind them, but that never happened. Right. So over the course of those days in August, the realization slowly set in, this is it. Right. So Leonidas is there with a band of about, uh, Herodotus suggests about 7,000 Greeks. Um, and included in that is the famous 300, which uh, most people know about if they know anything about Thermopylae. All right, so let's get into the week during which the battle uh, takes place. Yes, yeah, so that's August 13 through August 20, 480. Right. So you have, I believe, a quote from our kind of our source text here, Peter Green's work uh, that you're going to read for us. Yes, page 126. The Persians pitched camp near Trachus, between the Spercaeus and the Asipus rivers, probably occupying Anthela at the same time. Xerxes' first move, as one might expect, was to reconnoiter his opponent's position. A single Persian horseman rode quietly forward towards the hot gates. No one tried to interfere with this movement or give any sign of noticing that he was there. He saw very little of the main Greek camp, since it was hidden behind Leonidas's defense wall. Thus, it could not estimate, with any degree of accuracy, how large a force the Persians were up against. 
What he did see, however, filled him with astonishment. A number of Spartans were gathered in front of the wall. Some of them had stripped off, ready to take exercise. Others, like modern Maasai or Zulu warriors, were busy combing and dressing their hair. The Persian spy had never seen anything like it. Such behavior struck him as merely absurd, a view which Xerxes, on hearing his report, fully endorsed. Heralds were accordingly dispatched to parley with Leonidas and gauge the general state of Greek morale. Diodorus, probably drawing on Ephorus, that's another historian, purports to give the text of their proclamation. Quote, King Xerxes orders all to give up their arms, to depart unharmed to their native lands, and to be allies of the Persians. And to all Greeks who do this, he will give more and better lands than they now possess. End quote. The formula had worked to perfection in every state throughout northern Greece. Might it not work again? That the proclamation caused a split among the Greek allies seems clear enough. Many, Herodotus reports, felt sudden doubts about their ability to hold the pass, and a meeting was held to consider the advisability of retreat. Now here comes the money quote. Leonidas himself, to his eternal credit, came out flatly against any suggestion of a withdrawal, and it was his opinion that carried the day. At the same time, he sent back an emergency appeal for immediate reinforcements, quote, as their numbers were inadequate to cope with the Persians. Then he delivered his answer to the great king's waiting envoys, quote, if we should be allies of the king, he told them, we should be more useful if we kept our arms, and if we should have to wage war against him, we should fight the better for our freedom if we kept them. And as for the lands which he promises to give, the Greeks have learnt from their fathers to gain lands not by cowardice, but by valor. So right there, we see Leonidas is not only uh, deciding to stay, but he's also, he's, he sends a message back. Correct. Right? He, he wants, he says, you know, uh, this is in some ways worse than we thought. Back to Sparta. Back to Sparta. And the allies. And get that, uh, the main force up there as, as soon as possible. Right. And when Xerxes hears about this, he turns to the Spartan trader who's accompanying him on the expedition. Yeah. The man's name is... Um, Demaratus. Yes, Demaratus. And he says, Demaratus, what are they doing combing and tressing their hair? And the answer is... They're, they're getting ready to, to die and to die well. Yes. Yes, the, the, the kalos thanatos. Yeah, they do not want to enter the underworld. I mean, who would? Unprepared, you know, with a hair out of place. Right. So they have this tradition, Spartans do, that before death, before battle, they comb and dress their hair. They put on their best uh, garments and so forth. They want to... They want to enter death, the next life, looking good. The, the noble death, or like you said, the kalos thanatos. Yeah. I love the kind of picture here. I mean, the way that Green describes it and, and Herodotus describes it, these, these men that the, the Persian spies see, are, they're out in front of the wall. They're doing their hair. Mm-hmm. And, and the whole force, such as it was, is behind the walls. As Green mentions, the, the, the spy couldn't see exactly how many Greek soldiers there were. So you just have these Spartans, got, these Spartans kind of hanging out on the Persian side of the wall. Cavalier sort of attitude. Very cavalier. Not, not worried. Right. Ready to meet their fate. And I have to imagine that they, they probably saw this guy mm-hmm. and just simply did not care. Right. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it really is quite remarkable. Yeah. And then we have August 13. So right about the time that this lone scout came from Xerxes, something else is happening nearby. We need to mention a point we made last time, but we need to make it more emphatically now, that the Greek resistance to the Persian advance had two prongs. Of course, they were situated at Thermopylae, right along the coast, but they also had their fleet under the command of Themistocles, the Athenian, at Artemisium. Right. It was a similar kind of uh, choke point 
where the fleet was going to try to hold off the Persians as well, if not defeat them. Yes, before they could get down near uh, Euboea, uh, the uh, the island off the coast of Attica. Mm-hmm. So this combined um, effort here, it had to work flawlessly and had to work well together or the Persians would overrun the rest of Greece. Mm-hmm. I think this is something that's often lost in kind of the myth of Thermopylae. Uh, we were talking about in the, the movie 300, um, Do we have to talk about well, that? <laughs> I'm more charitable to that film than you are. I but, think it caught the spirit of yeah. the event. The rest of it was kind of nonsense. But, but if, if I remember correctly, there's no mention of the fleet. No. Uh, at S- all. Some of that is in whatever the sequel was. Which was which was 10 times worse. It was 10 it times was horrible. worse. horrible. Yeah. <laughs> but like you're saying, to get to get us back on track, yeah. my, my fault there, it doesn't touch on Artemisium, the naval conflict at all. It doesn't, right. But these two things are happening side by side, in, in tandem, both the Persians and the Greeks are kind of relying on the, f- the fleet. The fleet's relying on the land force uh, to work together yes. in all this. And here we see a great division of labor, perhaps a, a signal moment of cooperation among the warring city-states. Yeah. Sparta has superior land power. Athens has the great navy. So they divide it up. So I wanted to, to direct the listener again back to the Green book, uh, Peter Green's book. The section on Thermopylae, he, he coordinates that land battle with the, the, what's going on uh, at sea in a really ingenious and artful way. And so yeah. uh, we don't have the time and space to really give the full attention to the Artemisium side of this. Again, maybe in another episode we could, we could do that. If you really want to kind of see how these two things really worked in tandem together, check out Green. The, the, his passage on Thermopylae is worth the, the price of the, the book. Oh, alone. easily. Yeah, yeah. it's a great read. Great summer read. I mean, summer is, is coming eventually somewhere, and uh, <laughs> that, that'd be a good one to uh, commit yourself to. Yeah. So the morning of August 13, uh, the Persian fleet has some trouble, right? Off near Artemisium. What happens, Jeff? Well, this, is, this, is a recurring, this is a recurring thing. That the, it is. The Persian fleet is always having trouble about yeah. this, right? Um, but uh, yes, there's a, there's a huge storm. Mm. There's a massive storm. In August? In it, the Aegean? It, Where does well, this the, come the from? The Aegean is a notoriously difficult um, mm-hmm. uh, sea to sail. Apparently, I, it can go from dead calm to deadly in just moments. Right. Uh, even in the, the so-called, you know... Um, Sailing seasons, right? Yeah. So the the Persian fleet is is, is battered and bruised and and weakened by one of these 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 pop up uh, devastating storms. Yeah. And Green says uh, words to this effect: At dawn, the prayers of the Greeks were answered, and Boreas, the northern wind, began to quote blow out of a clear sky and raised a confused sea like a pot on the boil. Oh, that's great. Yeah, which is partly Herodotus there. He's quoting. Yes. And then uh, a large number of the uh, Persian vessels sunk. Yes. The, the Greeks thought, well, this is amazing. This is the, the gods have answered our prayers. Yes. And uh, now we have a better chance of holding off the Persians. Right. And this is not the last time this kind of thing happens. No. Yep. So in the wake of that naval disaster, where now a large part of the Persian fleet has sunk, uh, they nevertheless still have uh, about a five to three ratio compared to the Greeks. Mm-hmm. The Persians still have a very impressive navy. So why does Xerxes delay for almost four more days, right? From the 13th up until about the 17th when the land assault begins. What, what is he waiting for? Right. I mean, this is one of the mysteries. Um, I, again, Herodotus mentions this delay, but like a lot of Herodotus' narrative, it's, it's pretty skeletal. Um, he, he doesn't always give a motivation or, or explain uh, details. Um, yes, my sense that's... is that Green suggests is that Xerxes is, he's waiting for the, the fleet to re, uh, make repairs. Right. Kind of get its act together. It would take a full two days to make these repairs on, on the fleet. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a more romantic um, 
interpretation of this is is Xerxes. He's heard from Demaratus about the, um, you know, the the metal of the Spartans, and he's taken aback, mm-hmm. and he's a little bit nervous about sending his his forces into the pass. Maybe he's considering strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Because the whole point of of defending the choke point is that it takes the advantage of the Persians' numbers away. Correct. Right. So the the contemporary historians they distrust Herodotus on details like you know numbers of. Uh, Combatants, and they also tend to distrust Herodotus in terms of his explanation of, of motives. Yeah, because he has dramatic, really gripping ways of explaining why people did things, and theological explanations also, which set him apart from Thucydides. One of the great things about the Peter Green book is that he doesn't automatically discount Herodotus's psychological explanations. I mean, he takes them with a little bit of skepticism, but he explores them thoroughly before discounting them. Yeah, it's one of the things I really like about his narrative, right? It's not just, you know, tossing tossing out the baby with the bathwater. Right. And and he mentions, uh, you know, Herodotus has some sort of axe to grind with the Thebans that might color his narrative. And he has typical Greek, I guess you could call it chauvinism. The Greeks are better. Uh, but he's not entirely disrespectful of the Persians either. He he uh, he did his homework, I would say. Yeah. So does he ultimately make a move out of impatience? That's one of the questions. Does Xerxes say, all right, enough of this. Let's just use some of the tens or hundreds of thousands of land forces we've brought. Let's get this over with. Right, right. I mean, the the way that Herodotus describes Xerxes sometimes, you know, we mentioned his temper tantrum at the Hellespont. Did Xerxes really have a, a plan uh, did he? Did he really? Did he come upon the pass of Thermopylae, and, and did, was he really scratching his head? Like, you it's know, kind of inconceivable that he would not. I mean, how how could you move that uh, massive force west? You, we were talking last time about the logistics. Could he? Could he not have a plan? I mean, it's it's a competent world empire, right? No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm overstating that. But it, could it be that he came? to the Pass of Thermopylae, and he was presented with a conundrum that he didn't have an immediate, easy answer for. Yeah, right? that, that's quite plausible. Yeah. So August 18, Xerxes decides to engage. They send in the platoon of the Medes and the Scythians mm-hmm. into the pass. Ephorus, right, whose work doesn't survive, but others draw on the historian Ephorus. What, what is his speculation about uh, about this? It, he seemed to have thought it was one of two things that he uh, so sent the Medes in because he said these are great warriors. He crack admired troops. Their, yeah, crack troops. They were going to get the job done. Uh, but Ephorus also suggests that Xerxes might have had some bad blood towards the Medes mm. and said, well, if I send them in, the Spartans are fresh. They're, they're ready to go. They'll kill the Medes. Yes. Yeah. David send, sending up Uriah the Hittite. To yeah, exactly. Get rid of them. Exactly. Right. So what happens with that first wave on the 18th? The, the Greeks uh, beat them back. Hmm. Um, and the, the Medes and Kissians are badly bruised and beaten and go limping back to camp. Hmm. And so Xerxes decides to send in the, his, uh, his elite troops, the so-called immortals. Yes. And in that movie 300, the immortals are depicted with comic tragic masks over their faces. Oh, I've forgotten about that. Which is a, a interesting way to suggest how they were meant to be intimidating. It's not a very good way to fight, I'd imagine. Right, but, and, but they're, and they're also going up against guys in red capes and leather Speedos. That's it's, a, right. it's a strange mix. Yeah, the Spartans <laughs> use a false retreat maneuver. Yeah. Right? That they feign yeah, running away, and then when the uh, assailants are in disarray, suddenly they reverse and fall upon them and slaughter a large number. Right. And so Herodotus suggested, of course, is that tremendous discipline of the of the Spartans that really kind of rules the, these first couple of days in the battle. Which is a, an extremely plausible explanation of why it happened. Uh, because all the sources say the forces that Xerxes led, they're mercenaries. 
They're mm. not trained. Prof- I mean, some of them are trained professionals, but there's really no esprit de corps. It's in a it's an assembly of nations kind of fighting each for themselves. Yes. So at different points, they can show individual valor, but nothing all that coordinated. Right. Again, it, not unlike some of the Allied battles in World War Two. Yeah. Yeah, and it feeds into this larger kind of uh, narrative. It's the free West versus the the the, the tyrant. Um, right. Again, to that's Herodotus's storyline for sure. That, oh, for sure, for sure, right? And uh, um, and to and to reference that movie again, it's the you know Xerxes has to have these these soldiers whipped right. to get them to the front line, mm-hmm. whereas the Greeks are fighting for their homeland. Absolutely, a broad truth to that. Absolutely. So there's a stalemate in this assault, this wave. Xerxes leaps up three times. Now, the second assault is going to come on August 19, but here at this point, right on cue, as uh, Peter Green says, enters the man who holds the key to the entire conflict. Right. We're talking about Ephialtes? We are. And we're talking about him after the break. After the break. This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Since 1972, Hackett has been an independent publisher of high-quality translations in the field of classics, as well as many other corners of the humanities with offices in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Cambridge, Massachusetts. Dave, Hackett's growing classics list includes hundreds of titles covering ancient history, literature, philosophy, political science, and classical language study. Their classical lit catalog, Jeff, is loaded. Iliad, Odyssey, Aeneid, Metamorphoses. And do they have Herodotus? Absolutely they do. Translations by both Samuel Shirley, the one reciting today, and by Pamela Mensch, both with notes by prolific historian James Rom. The Mensch translation has the Great Sphinx as its attractive cover, and they are all so affordable. What about those Tiber dwellers? Anything on those toga-wearing folks? <laughs> Indeed. Hackett has titles on Ancient Rome, too, with translations of Suetonius, Livy, and more. I especially love the Hans Orberg series for Latin, the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata. Okay, and crew, save 20% on any order and re- receive free shipping from Hackett Publishing. All you have to do is go to hackettpublishing.com, find the text you want, and enter AN. 2021, AN2021 in the box, which asks for the coupon code. Don't hesitate. Check out hackitpublishing.com today. Today's episode is also brought to you by Ratio Coffee. What's the premise, Dave, behind the Ratio Coffee Company? Well, I understand they asked a simple question. In a world of super premium espresso makers, how come the home coffee maker has hardly changed at all? So based on his experience importing Italian espresso machines, Mark Helweg decided to see what he could do. So Mark and his team fixed that, right? Oh, yeah, that's right, Jeff. They put together a really beautiful work of art that sits proudly on your countertop. Imagine if Van Gogh or Monet had built coffee machines. That's kind of what you get, but the edges are a little sharper, the visuals a little less squinty. And it brews a good cup of joe? A good cup of joe? (laughs) Are you reading the script even, Winkle? What does it say? It says it brews a go cup of joe? You don't like that? (laughs) Right on. It brews a sweet degassed. Degassed. A, s- a sweet degassed cup with all the flavor and none of the brackish t- <laughs> none of the brackish tang. <laughs> I can't do the next line. Listen up, Ad Nazarenos. Get a 15% exclusive discount on the Ratio 6. This amazing machine is all stainless steel and engineered to truly exacting specifications. Don't throw away good money on some of those lesser products made from squirty plastic. <laughs> trying to laugh again. <laughs> squirty plastic. No better than the, than the box they're shipped in. Come on, man. 
Between now and March 20, 2021, our listeners should go to RatioCoffee.com and enter the special code ANCO, A-N-C-O, for 15% off the Ratio 6. A-N-C-O, RatioCoffee.com. Check it out. All right, so we'll get down to Ephialtes, the famous turncoat in this story. But there's a full second day of the battle, which is in in many regards a repeat of the first day. There's also another storm, which again damages the fleet. So there's more issues there, uh, both for the Persians and the Greeks. But uh, Xerxes sends in uh, at the pass a special uh, uh, brigade, and this time with the threat says, you know, if you if you you get over the wall, if you break the if you break the enemy, great rewards await you. If not. Uh, you're going to lose your head. So they're fresh. They're fresh. Because he has a large contingent of men from whom to draw. Exactly. You can send wave after wave. The Spartans are stale, I guess, if that's the opposite of fresh. They're tired. Tired. And Herodotus yeah. says that is, that Xerxes assumed, and this seems very logical, that you know by now the small Greek force will be battered and bruised and, and weakened. and Maybe uh, even ready to surrender. Yeah, exactly. Right. But it doesn't happen. Uh, the Spartans and the other Greeks repel the Persians once again. Right. So clearly Xerxes didn't understand what kind of men he was dealing with. Right. And that that comes out in lots of these famous phrases and lines and quotes that are attributed to Leonidas and other Spartans. And preserved for us by Plutarch in his parallel lives, we have some really interesting little, I think it's pronounced bon mots. Yes. Bon mots. Bon mots. (laughs) (laughs) French expressions of things that Leonidas said. You want to read a couple of those, Jeff? Sure, right. So, again, I'm guessing the audience is familiar with with some of these. Plutarch writes, when someone said, because of the arrows of the barbarians, it will be impossible to see the sun, Leonidas said, won't it be nice then to fight in the shade? That's great. It's great. Herodotus also records that line. I think he puts it in the mouth of a different... Yes. Soldier, but yep, not Leonidas, but someone else. But that's, right. I mean, that's right. After, that's, that's an action movie line. You're, you're right. Yeah. He anticipated Schwarzenegger and Stallone by how many years? Uh, thousands of years. That's right. Yeah. Hasta la vista, Xerxes. Something like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Here's another great one. Uh, at the time when Leonidas was setting out for Thermopylae to fight the Persians, his wife Gorgo... And if you have a wife named Gorgo, right, you're going to be a great hero. You're you're already ahead of the game. Inquired, Gorgo inquired whether he had any instructions for her. Leonidas answered, marry good men and bear good children. Yeah. Kind of saying, I'm not coming back, but let's carry on the Spartan And that's really interesting. A lot of these quotes uh, suggest that Leonidas seems to know that he's not coming back, that he knows this is a death stand, as it were. Yeah. Mm. How about one more? uh, Number eight here on our list. Number eight, what do we got? Um... Uh, Plutarch writes, when someone said, Leonidas, are you really here to take such a dire risk with so few men against so many? He replied, if you think that I rely on numbers, then even all of Greece is not sufficient, for the entire population is but a fraction of the Persian hordes. But if I rely on the valor of men, this number will do. Yeah, that'll do. Yeah. So, Jeff, we got one more, right? We have to squeeze this one, and it's probably the most famous uh, by far. You can buy hats and shirts emblazoned with this in the uh, tourist traps of Athens. Yes. When Xerxes wrote again, uh, recorded by Plutarch, when Xerxes wrote again, hand over your arms, Leonidas wrote back, come and take them. Oh, it's great. Molon. Molon labe. That's right. Yeah. As you come, take them. <laughs> you can have them if you want. Just get them away from us. <laughs> right, right, right. And not shouted at each other over across the battlefield. This was a, this was a text exchange. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that uh, Leonidas added some uh, frowny face emojis after the labe here? Uh, he doesn't strike me as an emoji kind of guy. Xerxes, okay. oh yeah, he loaded it up. Yeah. <laughs> Clowns, balloons. 
So Ephialtes, the traitor, what do we know about him? Not a whole lot. We know that he was a a Malian, so he's right from the area. You mean he's not a a Spartan reject? He's not a Spartan reject. He's not this Gollum-like figure who's who's, uh, kind of seeking revenge because he was... He was discarded by the Spartan Ostracized. Yeah. You're referencing the 300 movie again. Yes, exactly. Do, yes. do you think that that was just as a side a sidebar? Uh, do you think that that was a, a plausible portrayal, a good reason? Did you like that choice aesthetically in the movie? I mean, I thought it was okay. I mean, there's there's so much about that film that's kind of you know kind of over the top and cartoony. Yes, it's not it's not meant to be a documentary. Right? Well, we could do an episode on it, but based on our other episode. <laughs> Our other movie uh, episode, yeah, Troy. It wasn't very popular. We got to we got to try it again. All right, we'll give it a yes, try. Yeah. So Ephialtes is a Malian. Yes, he's a local boy, right? Yep. Apparently, the Malians had known about this path for a long time. For a long time, right? And this is also a kind of reminder that this is not the first battle that was ever fought at Thermopylae. It was a well known. Uh, place to to make a stand and to take an enemy's numbers a- away from them. Yeah, like the the uh, Brenner Pass actually between Italy and uh, France. Yeah, right there in the uh, the Alps. Um, it's kind of the only way to get into Italy with a large force. It's, this is the only way Thermopylae to get into Greece. Right. So the Spartans were not the first one to build a wall there. No, and they almost certainly uh, when they built their wall, it was built on top of the remains of what was already there. Ephialtes then comes to Xerxes and says, "I know the way." He knows the way, right? Up and over the up and over the hill. But of course, Leonidas and the Allied Greek forces—they knew about this shortcut also. This was not a, a secret amongst the Greeks. No. So, what precautions did they take? So, the uh, Leonidas had sent a, a band of, of Phocians, also local boys, up to guard the pass. Probably about a thousand, I think, is what the. I think that's what Herodotus mentions. Yes, a thousand Phocians at the top of the hill, which is a pretty large number, at least to make a an initial resistance until the others can can come to help. Right. It's a signal of uh, how seriously uh, Leonidas took this possibility. So once Xerxes finds out about this secret path via Ephialtes, the uh, Diabolus Ex Machina, the devil from the machine, yes. as uh, Peter Green very memorably uh, <laughs> That's calls great. Him. I love it. Yeah. When Xerxes finds out about it, he dispatches one of his main uh, strategists and generals, a Persian named Hidarnes. Yes. And he takes along a large force, and they're going to travel all night on the path, and they're going to surprise the Phocians who are waiting at the top. That's right. And you have this gorgeous quote from Peter Green once again about how this played out. Yeah, right. Before I, I read the quote, I, I, I think I used the word uh, kind of a path at the top of the hill. This is not a hill. Um, this is a very uh, sizable, steep uh, mountain. And this, is a, this is a huge undertaking uh, to take a, a huge force up and over this pass. But Green writes, the Persians climbed steadily all night. About dawn, they were marching along the mountain ridge of Nivropolis through thick oak woods. The recent storms had shaken down a large number of dry leaves from the trees. And as they advanced, Hydarni's 10,000 made a great crackling and rustling. The air was absolutely still, with not a breath of wind stirring. And this noise of boots kicking up leaves seems to have been the first intimation the Phocians had that a large enemy force was approaching. Well, that's really compelling. So imagine that you are a Phocian stationed on the top of that mountain, and you're laying on the ground next to a a fire that has just cooled off after being lit most of the night, and you hear men's boots trampling through the oak leaves, like Peter Green says. You know that this is your last day. Yeah, terrifying. Yes. Right. So how do the Phocians react? Uh, They they were not ready at all. Uh, I think Herodotus mentions something along the lines that the the Phocians themselves had kind of decamped to a, a kind of a clearing, a meadow, somewhere away from the pass. 
not so, taking their responsibility very seriously. No. There was no Spartan around to whip them into shape. No. And Hydarnes apparently doesn't take them all that seriously either. They, they, they fire a fusillade of, of arrows at them. They, the, the Phocians scatter. And Hydarnes decides, no, no, no reason to mess with these guys up here. Let's get down the mountain. Yeah. Back in the camp... There's a seer, right? That yeah. is a, a religious man, a man who can tell the will of the gods and therefore the future based on the flight of birds and also the entrails. His yes. name is Megistius. Right. And uh, he foretells death is coming for the Greeks at dawn. Yes. And then the watchmen come running down the mountain, you know, the remnants of the Phocians, and they confirm, yes, death is on its way. Yes. So now Leonidas has to make a decision. Uh, what do we do? Uh, do, we, do we retreat? I mean, Spartans... Never retreat. What do we do with the, the rest of these men? The, the 700 thespians, the 400 Thebans. There's a lot of controversy, yeah. a, a mystery here at the center of this. How exactly did this play out? And Peter Green helps us quite a bit in understanding it. You'll have to read that. Uh, but the idea that um, everyone wanted to stay and Leonidas sent them all away by force, not really accurate. No, very unlikely, I would say. Correct. Yeah. Um, I mean, to me, the kind of the most logical... Um, the logical answer to this is that, you know, probably many of these men, of course, wanted to, to get out of there. It was, it was certain death. Uh, but Leonidas also saw kind of a practical, practical side to that as well as you know, say, okay, go, go home, get ready, spread the news, let the, the people to the south of the pass let, uh, know what's coming and best prepare as they can. So now we're on the last day of the battle. This is August 20. The Phocians have been dislodged. The Persians are pouring down the mountain. They have flanked the Spartans and the allied forces, the Thebans and the Thespians who stayed, who stayed. with Leonidas. And what happens next? So um, Herodotus tells us that uh, the Greeks kind of, they break out of the pass and they kind of fighting more kind of out in the open. So of, that, that 20 meter, 20 yard to 50 yard little choke point, they give that up as yes. the best place to make a defense because all hope is lost. All hope is lost, right. Now you're just kind of in it for upping the body count. Correct. It's a melee. There's no more point in trying to stay in that narrow spot. Right. So the Greeks are out there fighting beyond the wall. Um, apparently this is where Leonidas himself is killed. He dies and there's this very, very Homeric fight over Leonidas's body. Yes, and there's also another legend recorded, which is that when Leonidas realized he was going to die, he took a small team of commandos and they tried to infiltrate the Persian camp oh, yeah. and assassinate Xerxes. Now, Peter Green says this is, of course, hogwash or yeah. words to those effect. But then he mentions this really interesting parallel, again, from the Second World War, the, uh, the British long-range desert patrol. They set out with a small group of British commandos, and they attempt to assassinate uh, the German tank commander, Rommel, in North Africa. And I think Peter Green says something like, would anybody 2,000 years from now believe that that's plausible? Right, exactly. Yeah, I, I love, that's an excellent comparison. Yeah. I'd like to take credit for it, but it's Peter's. So, <laughs> so Leonidas himself is killed. He's killed. And we have a scene from the Iliad, say, book 11, book 12. Yeah fighting over his body. This has always fascinated me. These, these men, uh, they were raised from boyhood on Homer. A Greek education is Homer, right? The point we like to keep making. They had read about the battle over Patroclus and Sarpedon and Achilles and so forth. Now they're living they're it. They're living it out. Yeah. It's a, it's a great epic scene. Uh, eventually, the, the Greeks themselves, they're completely surrounded, and they retreat to this little hill, which is still there, 
And uh, this is where, in our opening quote, we heard they were you know uh, fighting without, if they lost their weapons, they were fighting with their hands and their teeth. Tooth and nail. Tooth and nail, right. literally. And uh, the arrows rain down upon them, and the last of them are killed. Mm. The hill is at the mouth of the pass where the stone lion honoring Leonidas now stands, Herodotus tells us. Right. Now, that stone lion is not there anymore. There's another one uh, north and east of there, and nobody knows exactly what that is to commemorate. Right. It's uh, possibly for the Battle of Chironea. Correct. Um, but we, so we have a good idea of what this once looked like. So mm. Colossal Le- in, in size. Yes. Yeah. So uh, Leonidas, the story goes, was buried there. Again, in kind of Homeric fashion, you buried uh, you know, where you fell. Much after the fact, though, because Herodotus also records that Xerxes came to view the the battle the next day, yeah. disfigured and dishonored uh, Leonidas's body. That's and it, right. And it wasn't until the later Greek victory that the Greeks could go back and reclaim that territory. Exactly right. And then uh, Leonidas's body is is beyond that is eventually exhumed and brought back to Sparta, mm-hmm. uh, where he's he's buried. There is a so-called tomb of Leonidas in Sparta, but uh, almost nobody thinks it has anything to do with his actual tomb. Do they sell any? Good souvenirs there? Oh, lots of good souvenirs there. <laughs> you can come and take them. Now, <laughs> that's very good, Winkle. Now, are there any material remains of this uh, war that we could see somewhere? Yes. Uh, I mean, archaeologists have found human remains in and around that hill. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a great display in the National Archaeological Museum in Athens of Persian arrowheads mm. uh, taken from uh, uh, the battlefield of Thermopylae. So to a lot me, of this bears, bears out the Herodotian account. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. It reminded me of when I visited the battlefield of Gettysburg in Pennsylvania from the American Civil War. There were so many rounds, so many shots fired that some of them hit midair. Oh, man. And this is the kind of coverage because of the massive numbers at Thermopylae. Fight in the shade. That's right. So we have this epigram from the Greek poet Simonides. It goes like this, as quoted by Herodotus. Yes, much later Cicero uh, gives a version of, of the same poem in Latin, which uh, goes like this. Dic hospes spartae, nos te hic vidice jacentes, dum sanctis patriae legibus obsequimur. Yes, right. And uh, I have a translation of this that I especially like. It, uh, is it all right? Please. All right. Say, stranger at Sparta, that here you saw us lie, reverencing our country's laws as mother's lullaby. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. I like that a lot. Yeah. All right, so that's the end. We looked at the four days. Now, what does the site look like today, Winkle? I'm quite moved every time that I've been there. I think I visited the site maybe four or five times. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that always strikes me about visiting Thermopylae is how really easy it is to visualize uh, the battle. You can really see in front of you can Herodotus' version come come to life. Well, and it's empty. That's the other thing. Yes. Unlike many historical sites, they have become so clogged with contemporary structures and buildings, you really can't visualize what happened. Yes. Now, there is a monument there um, with a big statue of Leonidas and uh, uh, kind of across the road. I think one of the, the things that does make it difficult to to visualize it is that the sea has retreated a couple of miles. Yes, it's quite far away. Yeah. Right. Um, but the, and there's kind of a modern-ish highway that runs through there. So if you if you stand up on that hill of the last stand and you kind of picture the water where the highway is, you can really see the whole thing come together. I like the modern highway much better than the modern sculpture in honor of the thespians. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of ugly. I, I remember telling our our tour guide Christiana that I didn't like it. She didn't like that, but um, <laughs> the site is very impressive. It's it's 
it's sparse, right? There's not really much there. And yeah. then there is an inscription of this particular Simonidean epigram on a bronze plaque. Yes, at the top of that of the top of that hill. The right? hill of the last stand. Yes. And the archaeological work done there has discovered some remains of the defensive wall. Yes. That the uh, Spartans threw up there. Yeah, you can you can see you can see remains of um, at least a couple of, of walls that are there. I think you know, none of it goes back to you know the the fifth century. You can walk down in the plain. You walk down the hill into that n- narrow point. And if you're taking the Spartan point of view, to your left is that Kaladromos mountain, mm. and it plunges steeply right uh, right down to the base. Um, there's still the bubbling sulfur springs there. Mm. You can still see the hot gates there. The so, brackish tang. Right. That's the brackish right. tang. I echo what you said. Is that one of the wonderful things about the site is how uncluttered it is. Right. Yeah. It's open vistas. Now, the aftermath of this battle, it was a Pyrrhic victory, to be anachronistic. It was a Pyrrhic victory for Xerxes. He won the battle, but he was going to go on to lose the war. That's right. This, uh, this defeat for the Greeks bought a little bit of time for the other city-states to figure out their strategy, who's going to lead and how. Yes. So Athens was destroyed. Yes, burned to the ground. Yes, not too long after that. But in a brilliant move, Themistocles, the Athenian leader, argues along these lines, look, the city is not the buildings, it's the people. So yeah. the entire population moves off to the island of Salamis, and they abandon the city. The Persians come in, burn it to the ground, but they are defeated in the naval battle, and the Athenians just move back to where they were before. That's right. It, it's a brilliant move. It is a brilliant move. And so after the naval battle of Salamis, and then one, really one major land battle at Plataea, it's really over for the Persians. Yep, that's it. So speaking of over, we're on the downside of this episode. we got to wrap things up, don't we? We so, do. So what's your reaction, Jeff, to the things we've covered today? Um, th- this is one of my, I think this is one of the great stories um, of from, well, from, from any history, but from Greek antiquity, yeah. And so I'm continually fascinated by that push-pull between myth, you know, myth and legend on the one hand and kind of, uh, 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 accurate historical account on the other hand. I love how yeah, Peter Green really juggles those two things really nicely. Well, and he visited the site, right? He talks about walking along the trails. He tells you where he had lunch and so forth. <laughs> it's, it's great. Yeah. It's really charming. It's gripping. And uh, in our own visits there uh, in different times, cemented some of these historical pictures in our minds. That's right. All right, listeners, we got to get out of here. So as always, a reminder to leave a review uh, on whatever platform you use. We, we'd love to hear from you. Positive reviews uh, yeah. help us to get noticed. So at iTunes, how many do we have now? I think we, have, we are up to 21 reviews. 21 now. reviews. That's really nice. And and our goal is to top 23 by late May. Is, yeah. that, is that what we're aiming for? I think by March. March, by okay. May, maybe May is more Try reasonable. to move the needle from 21 Tw- reviews to 23. I think we can do it. Listener, can you do it? We're counting on you now. <laughs> Well, if you've got comments or questions or you have an idea for an episode, don't hesitate to, to reach out uh, to Dave at OddNauseum.com. Don't forget the V in there. Or to me, Jeff at OddNauseum.com. Absolutely. We want to say thank you to our wonderful sound engineer, Miss Mishka Fernando. She does such nice work. Yes, thanks, Mishka. And we also want to set up next week's episode. What are we doing next week? We're going to cover Virgil, the Roman poet Virgil, not the Aeneid. We're going to cover his first poem, his first surviving poem, one of the eclogues. It's pastoral poetry. That is the life of poetry in the countryside. So you're not going to want to miss that. Excellent. And Jeff, you have the gustatory parting shot. I do. This comes from Anthony Trollope in his novel, Barchester Towers. He writes, don't let love interfere with your appetite. It never does with my <laughs> That's great. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.